Last week, I, I gave you a brief um, history of the, as we've worked through uh, this passage of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and talking about spiritual gifts, really, really goes all the way through chapter 14. I, I gave you a brief history of the founding of the sort of the modern day Pentecostal charismatic movement, which, as I said last week, started in 1906 on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And Really, in the, in the almost 120 years since then, that movement has morphed and developed into three or maybe, maybe now four waves. The first wave was that initial um, Pentecostal movement that set the groundwork for the waves that would follow. As it began, it was an outlier movement, even though it spread quickly, it kind of remained on the fringes of the church. Um, individual churches and denominations didn't embrace these new and novel ideas initially. But by the mid-1900s, the second wave saw the rise of denominations that would call themselves Pentecostal, such as the Assemblies of God and, and others. And they promoted speaking in tongues, they promoted uh, miraculous healings, amongst other sign gifts, and these teachings really started to gain acceptance in the, in the wider church, and they spread across the world. And then in the 1980s, um, a professor at Fuller Seminary in California named C. Peter Wagner, he coined the term third wave movement to describe the kind of the changes that started taking place in Pentecostalism in the late 1970s. In fact, it was at Fuller Theological Seminary there in California in 1981 that John Wimber, who was the founder of the Vineyard Churches, started to spread and teach the ideas of this third wave movement. Even to today, those associated with this movement, this third wave, they generally don't want to be labeled as Pentecostal or charismatic. Generally speaking, they, they simply wish to be known as evangelicals who are open to the Holy Spirit. For the most part, they're kind of difficult to classify doctrinally because there's a de-emphasis on doctrine. As a result, their doctrine or their teaching can vary widely from one particular church to another. And so their preaching and their, and their teaching is heavy on personal application, experience, and feelings, and light on what the Bible actually says. For them, unity is far more important than doctrinal truth. Unity is built on relationships, they say. And so doctrinal differences are set aside. Well, recently, there's been a rise of a kind of a fourth wave, which has come to be known as the New Apostolic Reformation. Of this wave, John MacArthur said this. He said, NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation, it's like grape nuts. It's not grape and it's not nuts. <laughs> oh, you laugh at him. <laughs> he says it's uh, it's like Christian science. It's not Christian and it's not scientific. Well, the new apostolic reformation isn't new. It isn't apostolic and it isn't a reformation. 
But it is a rapidly expanding movement being generated by some of the same old troubling false teachers and false leaders that have been around in charismania for decades. Always dishonoring the Holy Spirit, always dishonoring the Scripture, always claiming miracles, signs, wonders, visions, and dreams. This, this wave of Pentecostalism, um, this fourth wave, is steeped in mysticism, emotionalism, and Gnosticism. And it's, it's characterized by talk of both uh, sort of a dominion and a reclaiming of the offices of apostle and prophet. But maybe the most interesting part of this, and really kind of why I'm telling you all of this, is that, that part of these false teachings, uh, they're being rapidly spread through contemporary Christian music, especially groups like Jesus Culture, Bethel Music, Elevation Music, and Hillsong. And by the way, Hillsong is in process of imploding as a, I don't even want to call it a church. What's at stake is the sufficiency of Scripture. So as I said last week, we must get our doctrine from God's Word and not by simply picking and choosing passages and biblical events that we like, but by studying the whole of the Bible to determine what the Scriptures actually teach. But my guess is that if you've spent any time at all talking with someone from one of these kinds of backgrounds, they'll appeal to what they have seen and experienced, or in the case of music, what they have felt. But experience and feelings cannot, they are not our final authority. Our authority must be on the whole counsel of God's revealed word. It is increasingly clear in the church today that the church is deeply confused about spiritual gifts and the role that they play, not only in the Christian life, but, but also in the authentication of the scriptures that have been given. And in these things, we, as I said last week, we follow the pattern of the Corinthians to which Paul is writing. So let me read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11 again. The Apostle Paul writes this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I, do not want, I, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. And to another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. All right, let's stop and pray. Lord, I pray that... Um, 
that I would decrease, that Christ would increase. Help us to understand these sort of difficult and contentious uh, topics um, that we would be as the Bereans, noble in searching the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Father, thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look at this list, really in verses 8 to 10. We looked at the most of the rest of that passage last week. Um, but before we get there, and kind of in reality, this is going to be a little bit more of a, of a topical sermon, so to speak, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us a couple of other places before we get to this list. But I'm building towards something, so bear with me. Yet as we do look at this list, as you think of verses 8, 9, and 10, the list of gifts there, consider the issue of what are usually called the sign gifts or signs and wonders in general. It would be good and helpful for us to remember that there are implicit connections throughout the Bible that we're supposed to think of when we read passages like this. We should be well-versed enough in the Bible that we think of other passages when we read passages like this. And so, for example, here, we ought to hear, to hear echoes of Joel's prophecy of the Messianic age. So listen to what the Old Testament prophet Joel wrote about concerning the, the coming Messiah when he wrote this. This is from Joel chapter 2. Verses 28 to 32, it really is longer than this. It starts in verse 18, but let me just read the end of this. Joel writes, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, even in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And so Joel is predicting, prophesying there. Part of that he's even quoting the Lord. The Apostle Peter makes this connection for us in Acts chapter 2. He actually quotes most of that in his sermon. Joel is predicting that the time of Christ would be characterized by the work of God's Spirit being poured out on all believers. Not just on a few, not just on a few sort of spiritual elites, as some in Corinth seem to believe. And so this, this begs the question now. Why am I, as I think I mentioned last week, why am I what is called a a cessationist? If I believe in the prophecies of the Old Testament, why do I believe that certain, to use the phrase that Paul uses here, manifestations of the Holy Spirit, why do I believe that those have ceased, have stopped, or are not for today? The answer is because I believe God's Word. Because I believe that all of the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ. Because I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And I believe that that these movements are a threat. And I'm compelled to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered for the saints. I believe that these things are a threat 
to the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. So let's talk about sufficiency for a minute. John Frame, in his his systematic theology book, he defines the sufficiency of Scripture very simply. He says this, Scripture contains all the divine words needed for any aspect of the human life. I really like that simple definition. Scripture contains all the divine words needed for any aspect of the human life. The 1689 Confession addresses this in the very first article by saying this, The whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for His own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. Nothing is ever added to the Scriptures, neither by new revelation or by the Spirit or by human traditions. And yet, even more important than those statements, and I think those are good and right and true statements, but even more important than those statements is the Word of God itself. So when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, there are two or maybe three passages that stand out that probably come to mind as the go-to verses for understanding the the importance of the sufficiency of God's Word. Now, there are others. In fact, it's all over the Scripture. But these are the the two or three that come to mind when we think of these things. So the most obvious one, the one that probably comes to most of our minds, is Paul's second letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where he writes this. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. No less important than that statement is what the Apostle Peter writes in his second letter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. Actually, you could read the verses just before this as well, but let me just read this part. He says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He is talking specifically about the Word of God being written and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so with those two in mind, those are probably the two most um, popular or the ones that come to our minds the first when we consider the sufficiency of Scripture. But with those in mind, the third one is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Listen to this one. The preacher of Hebrews begins this sort of sermon by saying this, Long ago, And many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
We need to remember as well as we consider these things, as we think about the sufficiency of Scripture. Paul began this section at the beginning of chapter 12 by explaining that no one is able to confess Jesus as Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And we know that this confession is the rock upon which the church is built. Jesus says that to Peter in Matthew 16. But let's take that metaphor of rock or let's just say foundation another step here. So consider foundation for a moment. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll come back in a few minutes to 1 Corinthians. But turn to Ephesians 2. I want to read just verses 17 to 20. Paul is writing here really about the unity of of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. And he says this, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here, in these verses, Paul is using the the imagery of a new temple. Clearly he's referring to the church. And the foundation, he says specifically, is is the apostles and the prophets. And obviously he's talking about their, their writings, their teachings, the truths that they have passed down to us. So now that that God has spoken to us by his son, Hebrews 1 tells us, and Jesus has entrusted the message, his his own words, to his apostles. In fact, we see this specifically in Acts chapter 1. Verse 2 says this. So Acts 1, 2 says this. And he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And then if we jump down to verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, speaking to those apostles, Jesus says this, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Therefore, we can definitively say that all that we need to know for salvation and sanctification, Christ-like living, has been given to us through the teaching of the apostles and prophets, which is found in the scriptures, as both Paul and Peter have testified, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. I just read those passages. We, need, we do not need, therefore, further words from God, from Christ, to explain what Jesus accomplished in his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Instead, as Jude tells us, we are to contend for the faith that was once for all conclusively delivered to the saints through the apostles and the prophets. This has to be where we start in this discussion because it is the foundation of our faith. We don't have apostles like Paul and Peter and John anymore. 
These men gave us the authoritative speech, uh, uh, teaching through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is the teaching by which the church continues to live to this day. And it is, it is the only teaching, the only doctrine we will need until Jesus returns. Now, I mentioned before that there are those who are trying to reclaim the title apostle for themselves. These people are always prideful false teachers with their own bloated sense of self-worth. Here's why I say that. To be an apostle in the Bible, to hold the apostolic office, meant that you were a specific witness to Jesus' ministry and resurrection. Peter explains this in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, when they were discussing a, a replacement for Judas, who was dead by that point. He had committed suicide. Peter says this, Acts 1, 21 and 22. He says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become uh, with us a witness to his resurrection. And so Matthias is chosen. And then later, in Acts chapter 9, Jesus himself chooses and sends Paul to be an apostle as well. Paul will tell us, I don't know if you've ever considered this, but Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, that he is the last one to whom the, the risen Christ appeared. Have you ever thought about that? He was the last apostle. So 1 Corinthians 5, 8 says this, last of all as to one uh, untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, if you're thinking about the timeline, um, Jesus, uh, uh, yeah, Jesus appeared to John. We have the book of Revelation. But, but John had been with Jesus during the ministry when he was on earth ministering. He was one of the original. So the last apostle chosen is Paul. He tells us that, 1 Corinthians 15, 8. And then one other proof that these it's limited to these men. In Acts chapter 12, verse 2, when the apostle James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, when he died, he was not replaced. He was not replaced. Apostles, as an office, were restricted to those who were witnesses of the resurrection and were commissioned by Christ and they were uniquely appointed in the early days of the church to establish sound orthodox doctrine, to give us the truth of God's word. The importance of this cannot be overstressed. There are no apostles today. Not here. <laughs> they're still alive. They're alive more than we are. And they're in heaven with the Lord. But there are no living apostles today. To claim to be so is to open a door to all kinds of false teaching and abuse of authority. And so what does this do but stress the importance of the written eyewitness accounts, stress the importance of the authority of God's word of Scripture? And so let me offer for you now a little bit of biblical proof, uh, proof of cessationism. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 
is another sort of very short list of gifts. It says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. This tells us, as Paul is writing this, that both the, uh, the offices of both apostle and prophet were gifts given to build up the church. They're its very foundation, we read uh, there in Ephesians. And if the gift of apostle has passed or ceased, then it's clear that others also can end, right? So, for example, the gift of prophecy, which is very often, although not always, in the New Testament in particular, connected to the apostles, it also has ended since we have a completed canon of Scripture. We have all of God's Word. So if you're still in Ephesians, I'll show you this. Turn to chapter 3. Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 6, says this. It comes right after that section I just read, um, where he's talking about the unity of both Jews and Gentiles in Christ in the Gospel. Chapter 3 says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is talking here about his gift of apostleship. In fact, he uses the phrase, the stewardship of God's grace. I said last week that the word for gift is um, uh, charisma, right? And the word chariz is the word grace. And so the, a, a good um, sort of translation of of gift there is grace gift. And so that's what Paul is talking about on behalf of, he says, um, uh, verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. He's talking about his gift of apostleship. But not only his, but also the rest of the apostles and the prophets who have now, through the Spirit, he says, revealed the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, and they've done this through the written revelation of God's word. They are receiving, the church at Ephesus, in this letter, the written revelation of God's word. This uh, done by an apostle, given by the grace of God. So we have to think of it this way. The early church, the churches of Corinth or Ephesus or Rome, um, at the beginning, they did not have the complete canon of Scripture. They did not have, at the beginning, all 66 books. They had the Old Testament and they had word-of-mouth accounts, right? They had heard stories of Jesus. And so an authoritative And an infallible prophetic ministry was needed in order to lay the foundation of the faith for the church. At the Last Supper, Jesus had said uh, to the, well, at that point, 11 apostles. Judas had got up and left. And Jesus said to them, this is in John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And there is some specific application for us in there today, but that right there, those verses are a specific promise to those apostles that the Holy Spirit would empower them to speak accurately the things Jesus taught, and they would do so prophetically, infallibly, without mistake, and authoritatively, they were able to say, thus saith the Lord. Does that make sense? You understand that? When Jesus made that promise to them that the Holy Spirit would come, that promise is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. As the Holy Spirit comes and Peter immediately gets up and preaches the gospel. Now, now we have God's inspired, God-breathed word. Now we have the Bible. So that, so that a pastor in any church can stand up in a pulpit and say, Thus saith the Lord with the authority of God's word. The authority has nothing to do with me. The authority is from God's word. We can stand, any pastor can stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, because it's right here. And so the gift of prophecy isn't needed anymore because we have everything we need right here. Peter says that, Paul says that, the preacher of Hebrews says that, on and on and on. Jesus said that they would say that. But what about the other sign gifts? What about speaking in tongues? Do you, do you realize that gift is actually very rare in the Bible? Um, in the book of Acts, there are three main circumstances where people speak in tongues. The first is at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That is when, as Jesus has said in John 14, that's when the promised Holy Spirit is given. This is when, right after this, uh, Peter will then, will then preach a sermon there in Jerusalem that includes his explanation from the book of Joel that the prophecies are coming true, that the Messiah has come and a new covenant between God and his people has been enacted. This is what Peter preaches about. The second, so the first is in Acts chapter 2, the second is in Acts chapter 10, when Peter first brings the mystery of the gospel to Gentiles in Caesarea, which is in Judea. This is, as Ephesians 3, 6 says, I read it a minute ago, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's a mystery to the Jewish mind that God would open up salvation to non-Jews, to the Gentiles. Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, Judea, Acts chapter 10, and then the third is in Acts chapter 19, when Paul finds some believers in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. This gift of speaking in tongues was being given as a sign that God's covenant promises were being fulfilled, that the gospel was going from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Jesus had said. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And they were. 
Additionally, I'm not going to turn there this morning, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, we'll get there eventually when we get to chapter 14, and also in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, those passages show us that tongues, now let me, let me be clear about this, tongues were real, understood languages. Those verses, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 to 5, and Acts 2, 17 and 18, um, tell us that tongues were the equivalent to prophecy. They're closely related. So, so the word tongues, um, it actually, in the Greek word for tongues, indicates a linguistic code, a structured language, not just random sounds and snorts. Um, in other words, when they were speaking in tongues, they were speaking real languages that people understood. They weren't just babbling. They were prophesying. They were preaching the gospel. And if prophecy as a miraculous sign gift has ceased because we have God's completed word, then speaking in tongues has also concluded. It is unnecessary, particularly if you're not using it for evangelization among foreign-speaking people. And so while I believe it has ceased, if you don't believe it has ceased, I hope that you're using it for evangelism. I hope that you're, using, I hope that you're getting involved in Bible translation because that would be pretty great. Although I think it's ceased. Remember, we, we cannot redefine how gifts are practiced today. Scripture, the God's Word, the Bible must define these things, not experience and not anecdotal evidence. The same is true for the gift of miracles or healings. Now, do I believe that God can intervene and miraculously heal someone? Absolutely. This is why we pray. This is why we pray fervently for the sick. Some of you will remember um, Linda Harford. When Linda was first diagnosed with cancer, she's with the Lord now, Linda and Ken both. When Linda was first diagnosed with cancer, they, they said, you're, it's, you're full of it. And then I went to the hospital um, when Ken had first taken her, and she said, I'm, I'm ready to go. She lived for years after that. And you, you know, if you remember Linda, um, the doctors were stumped. God miraculously preserved her life for his glory and for his purposes. I don't know why, but I know that it was because people prayed for Linda. And then when the Lord was pleased to take her home, he did. Yes, we absolutely believe that God can and does intervene and that he can miraculously heal people. And so we pray. But to claim this as a spiritual gift, to claim for yourself the ability to do what only God does, well, it, it must follow the pattern of Scripture, and therefore it must be verifiable. Think of the man born blind in, in John chapter 9. I'm not going to take the time to turn there. It's actually a pretty long passage. But if you remember that passage, if you remember that specific miracle, everyone, everyone involved, the man's parents, even Jesus' enemies, knew that he had been healed. 
In fact, the man himself said to Jesus' enemies, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He testified that it was Jesus who healed him, and it was a verifiable miracle. It was clear. This brings us back to the purpose of spiritual gifts. Paul tells us it's, it's for the common good. That passage when he talks about the gifts of apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, he, he says it is for the building up of the body of Christ. It's for the good of the church, of God's people. So turn now, finally, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me read again verses 8, 9, and 10. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8, he says this, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. And so there are about nine examples here of gifts. This is where we need to be very careful as we read through this. We have to remember, first of all, the context of 1 Corinthians, which um, if we were going to subtitle this or kind of in, in one sentence, we could say that, that the book of 1 Corinthians is, is corrections in the midst of division, Right? in the church. We said before that it is likely that some of the Corinthian Christians, they thought of themselves as more prominent than others. Um, They were the elite. And evidently, these elite believed that speaking in tongues was more important and more desirable than the other gifts. But also, notice this about what Paul says here. He doesn't define any of these gifts. And, and, and also, we, we would add, this is not a complete list. Um, he mentions, as I said, in Ephesians chapter 4, a few others, and in Romans chapter 12, there's another list, and none of them are the same. There's just some overlap. Um, this is not meant to be seen as anything more than some quick examples of how the Holy Spirit equips the saints for the common good. That's all Paul is doing. Some quick examples of how the Holy Spirit equips the saints for the common good of the whole. The first two are wisdom and knowledge. And honestly, these are very similar. Uh, We might put this in our own vernacular to to say something like book smarts and street smarts, right? Wisdom and knowledge. Both are helpful in their own way, but we could see these as, if we were to give a definition for both of them together, this could be the ability to give wise and knowledgeable advice and counsel in the context of Christianity. So from the Bible or, or how the Bible should play out, how the truth of God and the gospel should play out in our lives. The ability to give wise and knowledgeable advice and counsel. These are not Holy Ghost fortune cookies. You've seen that before. TV preachers like to say, there's somebody here named Karen. Karen's having back trouble Right? You've heard of these things before. That's not what this is. This is just simply uh, the ability to give wise and knowledgeable advice and counsel. This is that person in the church that you're drawn to when you need help, when you need advice, 
when you need counsel, whether it's in your marriage, in job decisions, should I buy this house or that house, all of those things, right? This is the person that you're drawn to. The third gift listed here is faith. Now, every Christian, by definition, has a saving faith. But some of us have a, have a sort of unshakable, mountain-moving faith. A faith that, that trusts God in the face of, of enormous obstacles. That kind of faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Consider, um, Paul will talk about, or the author of Hebrews, will talk um, often about faith in the book of Hebrews to those who are facing persecution, holding fast to God's word, holding on to the promises of God. This reminds me of sort of a, sort of a grandmotherly faith, at least of my grandmothers, who trusted no matter what, continued to trust in the Lord. The others here we've already addressed today. I've talked about healing, the working of miracles, which is sort of a generic term. But obviously connected here then uh, to prophecy, thus saith the Lord. These things are connected together. But then connected to prophecy, Paul mentions the ability to distinguish between spirits. Now spirits there is simply referring to Bible teachers of some sort. Today, we might use the term to speak of um, uh, the ability to distinguish between spirits. We, we might use the term just simply discernment. Think of 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. John says this. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets, he makes that connection, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So a spirit in John's teaching there is somebody who has gone out and is teaching God's word. And there are false teachers, false prophets, he calls them. And so the ability to distinguish between spirits is a discernment. John there is saying the same thing that, that Paul says at the beginning of this chapter. And so some of us, some even in this room, have the ability to rightly say, that guy's a false teacher. Stay away from that guy. He's a, he's a phony. And then finally, as, as we've already seen, that the gift of tongues and then its counterpart, interpretation. This is about the, the gift of being able to communicate evangelistically with someone from another known actual language. But upon the completion of the written word of God, the Lord is pleased to communicate now truth through Bible translation. We have his word. And we will find as... Um, as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians in the weeks to come, that the major problem among the Corinthian Christians is that although they thought that they were a spiritual people, they wanted their own will instead of God's will. They wanted the showy gifts that Paul mentions here because they thought it would give them more prestige. 
They apparently especially desired speaking in tongues because they viewed it as a, as a gift of status when in fact it was not. This is why Paul concludes this entire section in verse 11 with an emphasis on the fact that each gift comes according to God's will. He says, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Corinthians had a false spirituality. That's why Paul is correcting them. But true spirituality, it desires God's will to be done over our own. True spirituality desires to serve God anywhere, at any time, in any way that God wants, including in those areas that are not noticed by others or in doing things that are considered menial to others. True spirituality is humble and regards others as more important than himself. True spirituality bears the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. True spirituality, a person that is truly um, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, a person that is truly in the Holy Spirit, results in in a unified body of believers who build each other up in Christ and help one another to mature in the faith. A true spirituality knows that we have to hold fast to the truth of God's word that we have to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. A true spirituality holds fast to the truth and encourages each other to do the same. Pray with me. Lord, as we consider the warnings and um, cautions There's so much available to us in this day. We we don't have to have somebody come in to be a false teacher. We have access to it at the drop of a hat on our phones, TVs, all around us, Lord. It seems like the, the popular guys are the ones that are preaching false gospels. So, Lord, I pray that you'd give us this discernment, that we would be able to discern between the spirits as this gift is that we would be able to be like the Bereans and, and study your word to see if these things are true, that we might hold fast to your word, that we might hold fast to the promises of God, that all find their yes in Christ, that we might look to Christ, the author and, and perfecter of our faith. Father, as we approach the table this morning, as we come to worship through a renewal of our covenant commitment. As we come to worship you through eating and drinking, to taste, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, to proclaim Christ's death. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to you except through him. Father, we come to you this morning and are thankful for Jesus taking on our sin on the cross that we might become his righteousness. We come here this morning, Lord, being reminded of your covenant promises to us that you will never leave us or forsake us. Father, conform us to the image of Christ. Plant your word deep in our hearts that we might 
not sin against you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.